<laughs> hey friends, welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators podcast. I am Haley and I am joined by my regular co-host, Charlie and Miguel. I feel like it's been a minute Hello. since we've all three been together. At least it's been a minute since it was all three just us, right? Yeah. We've had a lot of guests recently. This is going to be good going back to our, our podcast roots, just us three <laughs> discussing a topic. <laughs> yes, I know. And we just got off of our uh, company retreat, was it last week? So we're feeling all the good vibes towards our teammates. So this will be fun. Right? Right? Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's weird. This is our third retreat. We, we do them every six months. And usually we're in person and we fly the whole company into a central location. And for the last three six-month intervals, we haven't done it in person. So I feel like we've gotten pretty good at doing it remotely. Yes. We've worked out all the kinks, but that's not a skill that I want to get good at. So let's hope for next six months. Yeah. Well, this will be the last one, I hope. Yeah, I agree. They also made an announcement that uh, our next retreat is going to be at a good location to make up for all of the virtual (laughs) retreats that we've had. So very excited about that. Well, I'm very excited about this conversation today because Charlie had posted this article in kind of our little group chat and was like, hey, friends, what do you think about this topic? And it was titled, The Creator Economy is in Crisis. Now let's fix it. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's a long article, but it's definitely not short. And so as I was reading through it, I was particularly interested in a small paragraph of it and that's titled Oversupply and Competition Between Creators. So I thought it would make for a great conversation. I'm very excited. Charlie wouldn't even banter with me before the podcast started because she wanted to hold back all of- Wanted to save it up. Yeah, she wanted to hold (laughs) back all of her thoughts uh, until we actually went live, which I had trouble doing, which is why we're a few minutes late. So to kick us off, I'm going to read just like a small little kind of snippet from this longer article, and then we'll discuss. Sounds good. Read to us, Haley. We're ready for story time. (laughs) Thank you. I don't quite have as soothing of a voice as Issa does, but I'll do my best. Oversupply and competition between creators. As in the gig economy, the creator economy is marked by the incentivization of oversupply. There is a multitude of creators willing to create content and an algorithmic feeds serve up a steady stream of alternatives. As a creator, one's content is commoditized. There are a lot of big words so far in this. (laughs) As a creator, one's content is commoditized and substitutable with rival offerings. When there is one monolithic feed built with an algorithm that uses a preferential attachment model, a small set of creators rise to the top and all creators compete with each other to capture the attention of audiences. The result is a zero-sum competition between creators that results in oversupply and devaluation of content. Though creators are trying to implement the playbook of leveraging social media platforms to build an audience before porting them elsewhere, the movement of one's audience is a non-trivial process that platforms are resistant to facilitating. It goes on to say that a unique element that impedes organization and activism among creators is the intrinsic motivation behind online creative work. Specifically, I love this part. 
or wanted to call out this part rather, creating content often has the connotation of being a hobby or labor of love, which causes many new aspiring creators to join platforms and start creating content for free without any expectation of compensation, benefits, or protections. This makes creative labor uniquely at risk of being undervalued and exploited. So I bolded a couple sentences in here. I'm not, you know, I know we can pull them up on banners and I did prepare for that. So we'll, we'll go ahead and start here. The result is a zero sum competition between creators that results in oversupply and devaluation of content. And I thought this was really interesting and wanted to discuss together and really answer these questions. Do we agree? What specifically is leading to this? How do we as creators avoid this if it is in fact true? And we had a a recent creator session and, and the artist Quinn Lewis had talked about this and I thought this was really interesting, which was the difference of being influenced or inspired by and how that actually adds to the problem if you're influenced by a creator and you end up copying their work, mm. right? Because that ultimately creates a oversupply of the same type of content. All right. Let's discuss. All right. So you know what this made me think of? This made me think of, okay, so you know if you go to a, a small little shop where I think it's like a curated shop. Let's say you go to like a plant boutique. Oh, yeah. These are my favorite. Uh-huh. You know, where like they don't have everything, but they've curated a very specific type of aesthetic and types of plants or whatever. Mm-hmm. You get really excited about going to those places because everything that you look in there is like amazing and cool. Maybe something you haven't seen before. It's an experience that has been created for you and everything has been handpicked to be cool. Like there's nothing in there that's an accident, right? Yep. To contrast that, you go to a giant store, like say- Walmart. A super Walmart, right? Where it's just like a ton of shit or even Amazon.com, where like you can type in mm-hmm. chair and get 4 million types of chairs, right? So these are two very different things. So I'm saying this to contrast an oversupply of choice and content, in this case, chairs, or a curated maybe five chairs, but I've picked them out for different reasons. I switched examples from plants to chairs. I don't know why. Anyways, all that to say... I don't think that that's a bad thing to have a lot of choice, and here's why. If it's physically in person, then trudging through all that would be impossible. It would be overwhelming. But on the internet, you can filter things down and get really, really specific. Mm -hmm. And let's say that I'm looking for a very specific chair, and I have the model number, and I want to see if they have it in stock and if anybody's had reviews on it or even made, like, taken pictures of it in their house or made a video review on it which is sometimes helpful on Amazon where someone does an actual video review. I can get so specific, I can whittle down my choices to exactly what I want based on criteria. So having too much choice is not a problem because through search engines and technology, we can get a lot of things. And then now we have the ability to kind of whittle it down. So too much choice is no longer a problem. Whereas like if you go to a big store, You're just like, where do I start? Do I just work my way from the right to the left? Do I go up and down every aisle? Do I bounce around? Do I get someone to tell me, hey, I'm looking for chairs. Can you please direct me to where I'm going? Like, It's like TJ Maxx. It's my worst nightmare. Yeah. Or Marshall's. Can't go in there. Yeah. Question on this, though. Yes, the internet does that, right? But kind of 
one of the things that they're talking about in this article is, you know, like the algorithms that are Mm -hmm. also on the internet as well. So you look at like things like SEO and search engine, you know, all the things. Does that not contribute to making the people that are really, really good at this, you know, all access, super, super accessible and people that are just average at this virtually impossible to find? Well, actually, I would say possibly, but not necessarily because with the ability of there being lots of content, you have a higher probability that if I'm looking for something very specific or niche, that I'll probably find it. For example, like I was shopping around for some new woodworking tools and I had the product ID number. So I can just put in this ID number, which is like letters and numbers. And then on YouTube, some guy I've never seen before that has a video that has like 400 views did a review on this tool. And he's the only guy that's done it. Not even the manufacturer has a video on the freaking thing, but this guy did it. And I looked at it and I got to see him use it and everything. And I ended up buying it because of his video. Not anything the manufacturer did, mm. not anything some big woodworker guy that has 4 million followers did because this is small potatoes for them. So I feel like the abundance of content, is, which is ultimately my point, the abundance of content makes it possible for niche types of mm. content that I'm looking for to exist instead of catering to like a mass appeal mm. that some popular outlet might have. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's what creators have to do these days because of the oversupply, right? Like I remember when I first started on YouTube, this is like eight years ago, and there was a lot of like lifestyle content on there where people would make videos. A really popular one was what's in my bag, where you just like are showing all the contents of your handbag. And there was like <laughs> hundreds of people making them and you would just search what's in my bag and watch all the videos if that's what you're you're interested in watching, you know? And that was a way that a lot of YouTubers back then got discovered. I don't think that that really flies anymore because it's like you need to have something different about you for someone to even pick your video from the feed. Like I think everyday carry is the like the men's version of it of the, when they show what's in their backpacks. Maybe you've got a really great thumbnail that shows a particular product that someone's interested in. I know there's things you can do, but I do think that overall standards have been raised on content because there is so much of it that there's like this bar to entry now where if you're not producing content of a certain level, you're just like, the algorithm isn't going to pick you up because people aren't going to watch you or they're going to start a video Mm. and then not finish it because they're like, ah, I can't watch this blurry thing. There's a lot more we expect from creators now because of the oversupply of content. Yeah. What do you think is leading to this? And like, how, how do we going kind of going back to those questions? Like what's leading to it? Do you think that it's people just following suit saying, you know, oh, well, it's working for this person. So I'm going to do the exact same thing. I'll be myself doing it, but I'm going to essentially create the exact same type of content. And then on the opposite side, how do we avoid it and stand out? I think that Honestly, part of it is more people getting interested in creating and just, I don't know, seeing the the rise of the creator economy and that whole thing of making something for yourself is really attractive, obviously. Another part of it, I think, is that the platforms themselves do not help with this. Mm. You are rewarded for posting very frequently on, why did I say that word weirdly? Frequently. frequently That's a hard on word. these platforms. <laughs> and like, I don't know, if you can upload to YouTube every single day or like twice a day, and you know feed the algorithm essentially you get rewarded for it and so i think that that can sometimes lead to lower quality content going out 
or it leads to the people who already have giant teams around them being able to be the ones to keep feeding it and keep growing mm. to rise up in that way. And of course, there is like many exceptions to this rule, but I think that's a big part of it is that platforms reward you for posting a lot and for posting a lot of content. You know what's funny though? The freaking algorithms, man, they're so mind screwy because uh, Henry was just talking, Henry, who I work with on Creator Sessions, was just telling me the other day that on Instagram, if you post something and actually post it and do not return back to the algorithm, like back to the application, that it will reward you by getting more people to look at what? your content to try to intrigue you to get back on it. Because people are consistent, like they're like, they post something, right? And they're immediately like, who liked it? Who liked it? So they're checking it every five, 10 minutes, you know, or, or more than that in many cases. And so if you post something and do not look at it. Instagram's trying to get your attention to get you back on the application. So just stay off it after you post it. And I'm like, these are some like mental psychology. These are games. I want to see the receipts on that one. I don't know about that. I want to I look into that. <laughs> I want to say that he had it from a pretty valid source, but I can't remember the exact details about it. But we were chatting about it as it relates to like the creator sessions content on Instagram. And he's like, as soon as we post something, you know, cause it's a new account. So we're trying to, you know, get, get more attention on it. And that was his suggestion. I mean, I would believe it. And I think it's a good example of how an algorithm is more than simply just a search engine, right? Like mm -hmm. it is trying to learn and, and it has, it has different goals, like ulterior motives maybe is a, a good way to phrase it. Yeah. And that it does play a part in whether creators are successful or not. I have an example. This is what I was, I told Haley, I wasn't going to share before <laughs> the show. I think that there is still like, despite all this, there is still chance for smaller creators to find success and to like get their content in front of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's what I'm saying is that the algorithm can serve it up. It's up to the creator if the video is good enough and if people stick around, but it does still rise up there. And a good example I have is, is recently um, around this time of year, I very weirdly like to watch content about girls in the US rushing for sororities. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's very specific. They make these videos about their week and like which houses they're going to or outfits they're wearing. And I don't know, it's like a guilty pleasure for me. I enjoy watching this. <laughs> and so just this morning I typed into my YouTube search, I was like, Alabama rush vlog, because those are like, that's the most common university to make them. And like, I watched a couple from these creators who had maybe like 1000 subscribers, 700 subscribers. They were like small channels and they got served up in the algorithm because they had titled it properly, I guess. And it's like, I don't know, it is still possible to be discovered. And it's currently rush week right now, I think. I think it just ended, at least in Alabama it did because they've all got oh, their houses God. now, but. <laughs> <laughs> this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Oh my gosh. So that is proof, people, that even if you're a small creator, you can still make it to the top of the, at least the Alabama rush algorithm. <laughs> well, that's what I'm talking about. I'm saying that, uh... If you have really niche content like what you said, <laughs> I feel like there's such an infinite amount of interests and things that are people people are trying to look for mm -hmm. that there's no such thing as like too much content on the internet, at least not at this stage of, of where we are with the internet, because it's not a normal supply and demand where there is... I don't think it follows that because I don't think the existence of more content devalues content because there's so much of it. If is that, if that makes any sense. Yeah. At the end of the day, you are making a video because you are 
gambling that there are people out there who are interested in what you're making a video about. And chances are, if you're interested in it, maybe someone else is. And it's just a matter of trying to figure out how to get yourself seen by people who are interested in that. Or if you're lucky, if you can figure out how to get people interested in something such as that. So yeah, just like what I was saying before, I have very specific types of videos I want to see about a very specific type of tool. And I look for it and lo and behold, some 45, 50 year old guy that somehow figured out YouTube made a video of him cutting some wood with this tool. And uh, I benefited from that. Yeah. And he doesn't have a bunch of views, but he was the first one on the list of the very few videos that were about that thing. So I just, I don't see getting back to where you were saying the oversupply really being that big of a problem. I don't think there can be an oversupply of content. You just have to figure out how to kind of like break through. And that can be by getting hyper-specific or some people get get through by being hyper-broad, which can, you know, has pros and cons too, right? If you make very general content, it won't be interesting. But if you make too specific content, you're kind of weeding out a lot of people because maybe you're not interested in that one specific thing. Maybe you're interested in the genre that that thing is in. Yeah, I think a mix of both is probably good for creators to have yeah. in their platform and their approach to it is some stuff that's more general that you could have a chance of, you know, being the video they click in from the search feed of many others and some stuff that's more specific where like they're going to see your video and be like, that's exactly what I was looking for and click on it to watch it. Mm. Where I thought you were going, Miguel, at the start when you were talking about, you know, the plant shop versus the the super Walmart with chairs. The wood shop, plant, wood, stools. Yeah. What I would love to see more from platforms is maybe we'll call it like hyper curation, right? Where I still sometimes don't think that the the algorithm which gives us our feeds on each of these platforms is enough because I don't know about you, but I watch a lot of different types of content, right? I'm not only interested in Alabama sorority girls <laughs> choosing their houses, you know? Sure. I'm in different moods sometimes. And I think that our feeds just put everything in together. And sometimes I sit scrolling my feed and I'm like, ah, none of this is what I want right now. And that's when I like, you know, go elsewhere to try and find it. And so, yeah, for sure there's not an oversupply because I think we're all still like looking for content at times. But I think that that could be an opportunity for platforms to, to help out creators is to be more intentional about curation and delivering curated lists perhaps as well as the general feed and making that a core part of the platform could be a good way for smaller creators uh, or like, you know, just lesser known creators to rise to the top. Yeah. Let's recap this question. So we don't agree. We don't agree that there is an oversupply and that that devalues content. There's a lot of content, but that's okay. <laughs> Post in the comments if you agree or disagree or what your thoughts yeah, are. Yeah, I'm curious to hear this. Yeah. All right, let's move on. So uh, this kind of next little snippet, I want to chat about this, which is creating content often has the connotation of being a hobby or labor of love, which causes many new aspiring creators to join platforms and start creating content for free without any expectation of compensation, benefits, or protections. I pulled this piece out of this article very specifically because in order for ConvertKit to grow, this can't be true. Right. I mean, truly, though, like if all of our creators out there are giving away all of their their content for free, then our mission to help creators earn a living doing work that they love is never going to come true. 
Right. And so for us, like we can't agree or else convert kids going to <laughs> ultimately won't succeed. So, you know, and it also can't be true if the creator economy is going to rely like relies on the creators to be able to monetize their business. So the question really is, is like, what's the right path to monetization for a new creator? Is there one? And then how do we shift this mindset in creators? And, you know, maybe like Teddy would be a great person. Teddy, actually comment in the comments, Teddy, on what your thoughts are on this, because I'm I'm really interested to hear what your specific thoughts are on this, at where you're at in your creator journey based off conversations that we've had on the podcast and whatnot. But yeah, how do we shift this mindset? I think there's actually something different that's the issue here, if I can just take us in a slightly different direction. Take us. It felt a little bit like maybe this article by, by Lee Jin, by the way, we didn't say who wrote it, and this was in Lee's Substack, this article, but it felt a bit like it was implying that, oh, should creators get paid to even post the content in the first place, like regardless Mm. of the views. And I'm like, "Ah, I don't know about that. Like, I think we still get a lot from the platforms in terms of distribution that we wouldn't have access to otherwise. Like if YouTube didn't exist, I would still be a little nobody in New Zealand with nobody knowing who I am, right? Like YouTube gave me a lot of this distribution. I didn't get a lot of my audience from search traffic on Google and things like that. Like it was YouTube and coming up in YouTube search results. And so I'm perfectly content with the fact that I gave that content to YouTube for free, essentially, because it was a good investment for me in the rest of the business I've been able to build. But where I think the issue is, is the part about there being no protections and the fact that there's also no like rules in play for this. I think that a lot of new creators come in like, you know, first of all, they're doing it free because they do love it. And so that means that when they get an opportunity to monetize through a sponsorship, for example, they charge way too low rates. Mm. Like they're like, oh yeah, give me 50 bucks and I'll um, promote you in this video. And that is then what a company knows they can get for access to an audience and they base their prices on that. And it just creates this whole play where it's completely undervalued. I had a situation recently where I really had to fight for a certain rate with a sponsor. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I just don't wanna be having this conversation. Like, if this is not a no brainer for you, then I don't wanna work together because I just, that's not the situation I wanna be in. And it's Mm -hmm. clear that they'd had other creators they'd worked with who had charged way less. And I was like Mm. shocked. I was like, that wouldn't even cover my time to make this video, let alone the like access I'm giving you to my audience and Mm. the, you know, the brand affinity that we're creating by me promoting it. Mm. I think that brands don't realize that and creators are contributing to that problem. So that's me on my soapbox Mm. for a little bit there. Not to like uh, share a future episode topic, but that is the topic Mm -hmm. that you pitched, um, which kind of covers that. And so that's a little sneak peek into a future topic that we're going to have. Future topic. <laughs> uh, yeah, a future topic that we're going to have. But I totally agree. I think that that is something that we need definitely more transparency in. So how did you end up navigating that? I think I just was in the end, it was like, okay, well, if this doesn't fit for you, then it doesn't fit for me. Like mm-hmm. I'm not willing to negotiate myself down, you know, mm-hmm. and that's just how that went. And I had to be okay with losing out on that mm-hmm. for the sake of it. But yeah. It sounds to me like the situation was Maybe the the people that they had worked with before offered it so low, maybe because they were afraid that if they asked for too much, it would fall through or mm. or maybe they're treating it as like, well, the point isn't for me to make money off of this. It's I see it as an investment 
in my brand or something like that. Because you said mm-hmm. it wasn't worth your time. So maybe maybe it wasn't worth their time either, but they were thinking, well, if I partner up for them, maybe it'll pan out in the future. Mm-hmm. So the payday isn't yeah, yeah, yeah. this. It's what leads, what has led to from this. Really good point. So you have to weigh that out as well. I mean, for you, mm-hmm. maybe it wasn't that, but for maybe someone else, it can... They're thinking about the next few steps and what that could mean. But I think you're absolutely right. I think oftentimes creators don't charge enough and it's kind of a race to the bottom and it's like the lowest bidder wins. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the fact that content, the fact that it starts as a hobby is a cause of that problem. Just to bring it back to Haley's original question. (laughs) Nicely done. Nicely done. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. The example that I have is um, I have talked about this on this podcast several times, but I have a pottery obsession. Like I love pottery. Right. And a lot of potters start out as just like hobbyist potters. Right. They're just like throwing or whatever they do it for. You know, a lot of the reasons I'm going to do it. They're not doing it actually for production type stuff. But I follow this one potter who's based in Portland. It's Lula Pottery. And I really like her story because she actually had never thrown on a wheel before. And she had built this entire business plan on how she was going to leave her corporate job and how she was going to learn this hobby and then how she was going to put it in practice, build essentially an e-commerce business selling her like small batch pottery. I mean, she had like a studio plan. It had invested thousands of dollars and obviously she was able to do that, which is, you know, a huge blessing. But from day one, she had looked at it like it was a business. Now, if we're looking at using ConvertKit customers as an example, most of the time, I would say that our churn, which is customers that join or sign up for ConvertKit and end up falling off, end up being creators that are doing this as a hobby and they don't have yet the skill set of how to make money. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I value Nathan so much, right? Is because Nathan has said, because of his past experiences and his childhood, that the ability, it's a skill set to learn how to make money. And as creators, I think the way that we solve this problem is by always making like the end goal about how you monetize your business. Mm-hmm. The fact is, is that you're never going to continue doing something for long periods of time if it doesn't somehow contribute to like, I don't want to say the bottom line, but it's just not sustainable. Maybe it's something that you do for a short term, like a year, right? And you're like, oh, this was really good for me during the pandemic, right? It really served my mental health. But life just happens, right? There's things that you have to do. There's bills that you have to pay. There's things that take priority over other things. And in order for a hobby to become sustainable and actually ultimately turn it into a monetized, you know, like something that adds and contributes to your life monetarily, then you need to go into it thinking this has got to be a business and have that plan from the beginning. At least that's kind of my thought. I just had a thought that you made me realize, Haley, and This is something that I've always struggled with because when it comes to monetizing my hobby, I've always been very, and I've talked about this before, I've been very careful Mm. about not making it something that's dependent on me constantly cranking stuff out Mm. because I know that that's not sustainable for me. I know myself well enough to know that that would get to a point where it would become a chore, not a hobby, and I would fall out of love with whatever it is I was doing. So from the get-go, it's always been super important for me to identify what part of this thing that I'm doing is something that I can consistently do, but it doesn't turn into a chore because you can break it up. So with woodworking, obviously there's a lot of labor intensive stuff that goes into that, but there's pieces of that that 
maybe is one time I talked before about making plans instead of making the thing. So the way I think about it is you can be a creator, but not like a manufacturer, you know, mm, like mm -hmm. we talked about this in during our retreat, actually, Nathan was talking about this, how like you can use leverage, like you can do something one time that then kind of like perpetuates itself or like you do something one time and it has tons of effect instead of a one-to-one -one mm. kind of type of situation where you're like, I do this and I create this. I do this and then I create this. I do this and I create this. Because that, that is not sustainable. That model of like one-to-one, -one, if you want to scale up a business, it's just, it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Charlie? No, I was going to say, can we move on to the next point? Because I want to talk about competition. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes. All right. Here's the next point, And here's the commentary from the article. When there is one monolithic feed built with an algorithm that uses a preferential attachment model, a small set of creators rise to the top and all other creators compete with each other to capture the attention of audiences. All right, Charlie, take it away. This part was challenging for me because... It's not at all how I, I feel about creating. Like, I don't feel like I'm in competition with other creators. But reading this, I was like, you know what? I am though, like I am. If someone's only got 10 minutes to watch a video, they're picking between me and someone else. If someone's going to eventually like invest in a course from a creator, then I'm technically in competition if I had a course. Like I'm in competition with all the other design YouTubers out there offering a course on a similar thing. Like. It is competition in a way, but I don't think in general, this is the attitude creators have towards each other, at least in my experience. And mm. I like that. And I want that to stay true that we don't feel like we're in competition with each other. I don't, honestly don't know what it is like right now, but back in the day, collaborations on YouTube used to be a key way to grow. And that like involved you working with another creator, appearing on their channel and like promoting them to your audience. And then in return, they promote you to their audience. That's how I, I grew initially and like uh, from collaborations, also from being added to lists of like designers to follow on YouTube. Do you think that's true today? Did you watch the show, Emily in Paris? I mean, who didn't? Come on. Yeah, I did, um, unfortunately. All right, I'll go get a drink of water or something. <laughs> but I'm more ashamed about watching that than yeah. the, the Alabama <laughs> Roche box. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but there's this one scene where Emily in Paris is, I don't know, she goes to this influencer event, mm. right? And mm -hmm. she um, is taking a photo, right? And she's doing some funny caption and the other influencer in the shot says like don't tag me don't touch my audience don't make them think you're part of me like we're not collaborating here it was the sentiment she says it way cooler and way more funny than that yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm clearly not a show writer <laughs> I feel like that is more common now than sadly you might be right yeah I think that might be seeping in more and more I think especially on Instagram maybe when within the lifestyle community where brands are going to have a set number of influence they can work with on a sponsorship and right. it kind of fits with all of them. Right. Yeah. I guess maybe that might be something I start to see within my little design YouTuber group. But right now we find that usually if a brand wants to sponsor one of us, they actually want to sponsor all of us. And they're like asking mm. us for introductions. And so I'm like passing a brand on to my friends to, mm. to be like, they could be a part of your campaign too. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is, comes back to Miguel's point about niching down, right? Like if you have a certain niche you can offer that is the right fit for an opportunity, then it would be a no-brainer to pick you. But it might also mean that you're selecting out of other opportunities that perhaps don't fit with your niche. And it's like kind of like a, I don't know, 
It's just a different way to play it. I wouldn't say it's a risk. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's also more about not necessarily it, it, niching down is one way to do it, but I think also there's so much, there's style and then there's a substance and then there's finding the right mix of the two for you because for those really hyper-specific videos, I think the substance matters more than the style. Mm -hmm. Like that 50-year-old guy that made that video about that tool, it was not a great shot. Oftentimes he was like, some things took way too long. He didn't edit anything down. It was just a raw video of him just like, he left his phone propped up against something or whatever. Mm. But I watched it because the content was so niche and not easily accessible because there were no other videos that I suffered through. But it wasn't really suffering through. I'm just saying like it wasn't a pleasant viewing experience. Mm -hmm. And then there's the style, of course, where it's like if something is shot really, really well, edited really well. There's graphics and transitions and all kinds of stuff that I don't know any, that much about video, but it looks really professionally done then the substance may not matter as much to people who just want to be entertained as opposed to informed. So if you're doing something that's informative, substance might be better than style. But if you're doing something that's more entertaining, then style might be mm. a different mix of substance to style might be important too. So just kind of figuring out what your brand and your style and how you want to engage with your audience is such a big part of it as well. And how you get people to come to you as opposed to someone else, because you guys did mention about competition, mm. whether you like it or not, being a reality of, yeah. of the space. I think what we have to do as creators is not let the platforms and the brands put us in competition with each other. Mm. We can't let that happen. And I think that too often going back to what I was talking about before about um, you know undervaluing yourself, I don't think creators realize the power that they hold. Like if every creator decided to stop uploading to YouTube, YouTube wouldn't make any money, right? Like we do hold that power. Mm -hmm. And I think we forget that sometimes. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that it would be easy to organize all creators to stop uploading to YouTube, but like, you know, we are the ones that are bringing people there and that are bringing them to watch stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just think that we can take more ownership of the direction of this whole thing. It's harder for us to do because we're not an organized group like platforms are, like companies are that are part of the creator economy and, yeah, but that we should try. We should approach it that we don't want to compete with each other. We want to raise each other up and collaborate instead of compete. And I don't know, maybe I'm too optimistic and altruistic, but I just feel like we can make that be the case. I definitely don't think that's too much optimism. I think that especially creators like you who have such a large audience, like you really influence that. So, and you know, so much of your content is about teaching creators, specifically designers, obviously, um, the realities of what it's like to be a designer. And you're also not holding back important information like how much money you freaking make <laughs> or, you know, or what you should be charging or, you know, having those conversations that really encourage and inform other creators to hold themselves to a level or a, like a higher standard and really understand and know their worth. Yeah. Well, friends, I think, oh, unless you have something else. Nope. I was just going to say, maybe I'll feel differently about this whole thing when, when I reach a stage where I get left out of the campaign that all my friends get, you know, paid sponsorship deals with, but we'll see. We'll tackle that when we come to it. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. Well, friends, I loved this conversation. I think that these types of conversations are really important to have um, because we inform the future of the creator economy. And 
And these are just like important questions to ask yourself so we can make sure that we're aware of them and we have plans on how we avoid the bad things and head towards the good mm-hmm. things. So thanks for joining us. We will be back next week with a very interesting topic, whatever that may be. <laughs> I was like, will we? What is the topic? <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't know yet. <laughs> we promise it'll be interesting though. Join us, by the way, we go live at, on Wednesdays at 12.30 Eastern time on youtube.com slash convertkit. So if anyone is listening to this after the fact and doesn't join us live, you should. All right. <laughs> Bye friends. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe so that new episodes appear in your podcast feed every week. And while you're at it, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. If you want to join us live for the next recording, you'll find us on ConvertKit's YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash ConvertKit every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern. This show, like everything we do at ConvertKit, is made for creators by creators. We're on a mission to help creators like you earn a living online, and we make software that helps you build and connect with an audience of loyal fans. ConvertKit is the best way to launch or grow your next creative project. So to start building your audience, go to convertkit.com free and create a free account. We're looking forward to helping you on your creator journey.